Being my way through graduate school as a history major, the Lord was gracious to provide me with a job as a research assistant. The job was connected with a special center located in the campus library designated for research in, the, in Minnesota history. I heard about the job one day, and I'll never forget going to that interview. I went into the library, and you know, it kind of gets quiet as you walk in the library. And I went upstairs, and I went into the Minnesota room, which got even quieter as I shut the door. And at the back corner, there was this dark glass door, but it was darkened. There was no light on the inside, but I saw over the top of the door that that's where I was supposed to go for the interview. I walked in there, and there's this dark hallway with a light at the end in a room. And I shut the door, and now it was really quiet. I was convinced if I ever didn't come out of there, no one would ever find me. It was in the bowels of the library. And I walked in and met the director of the center. He had the most unusual voice you could ever imagine. I, I almost jumped when I heard it. it was, uh, he, he spoke very deliberately with almost clenched teeth. It was like he never opened his, his mouth and a monotone that just couldn't be imitated. He sounded like death itself. Uh, but I listened to what the job would entail, and he, had, he informed me that it would deal with research in necrology, and he asked me if I knew what that was. I assured him I had absolutely no idea. Uh, he rebuked me, saying that you're a student of Greek, you should know this word. He said, necros is a Greek word for death. You're going to be studying death. <laughs> I was, uh, he got my attention. I was a little bit concerned as to the place where I was standing and his voice and all of it put together. But I was going to be studying death. And then came the hard sell on his part and the reason that the job paid no better than Burger King. I was going to be looking through newspapers, reading obituaries and writing down the day somebody was born and the day that they died. That was my job. Uh, but I was about to go hungry without work and so I agreed that um, it sounded okay and I would try it. Day after day, I paged through newspapers, mindlessly copying unknown names and meaningless dates. Ethel Rutledge, born January 7, 1869, died December 1, 1932. Next card. William Johnson, April 14, 1877, died March 3, 1933. And on it went day after day. One note card after another. But in God's sweet providence, as a believer, you always learn. The one thing that was driven home to me was the reality that the vast majority of us live our days in historical silence. As one author put it, the best part of human history is never written at all. I wondered as I read, who's this mother, this Ethel Rutledge? What, what passions does she have? What struggles, what triumphs has she faced in life? Who was she? How did she live? What went through her mind as she faced death? And the obituaries were silent. Only a name and two dates. The fury of our lives, the triumphs, the struggles, the defeats, the recoveries, the shattered dreams, the realized ambitions, and all the little things that we do every day are never recorded. The vast majority of people never become the subject of books or even a three-paragraph newspaper article. We live out our days in relative anonymity. We die in relative seclusion and the whirlwind in between, which we called our lives, slowly fades 
from the memories of the living. As the generations pass, we leave behind us a name and two dates, birth and death. I learned another important lesson as I worked with obituaries, and that is that the recording of a name and two dates, however, is not an insignificant ritual. I was convinced it was, but my attitude changed a little bit. The preservation of genealogical history can have some very pragmatic benefits, such as serving to bring two long-lost siblings together once again, aiding in medical research. There's many uses. Probably the most common benefit was those who longed to understand their roots. Every name that is recorded preserves the potential that someone might be spurred to further investigation, resulting in a new awareness of one's heritage. This is particularly true when it is God who performs the genealogical work. If you're like most readers of the Bible, as we talked in our adult class this morning, you don't find genealogies very exciting when you come to Scripture. I mean, let's, let's admit it. It's really hard to pronounce these names. And let's admit it, they tend to be pretty boring. They don't seem to have any purpose, a whole bunch of names of people you don't know. I think the first objection is legitimate, that the names are hard to pronounce, but I don't know about the second that there's nothing to them, that they're boring, that they're just meaningless people. In Genesis 5, we come upon a lengthy genealogy. But I remind you that it's God who's written the genealogy and He has something to say to us. There are clues everywhere that this is a record of extreme significance intended to further investigation, to draw us and our attention to look deeper at what the Bible has to say and the heritage of God's people. What can a genealogy written several thousand years ago teach us today? Well, let's investigate together. But as we come to Genesis 5, we have to first of all know where we are. And I uh, feel sorry particularly for those of you who have just plopped in here today and don't know what we've discussed the last few weeks. It would be, I think, more helpful. But let's retrace a little bit of the context as we come to Genesis 5. And I'd invite you actually to go back, if you would, if you'd like to, to chapter 1 and verse 1. And just to page through Scripture. In chapter 1 and verse 1, we have obviously what we might call generally and loosely narrative. That is story, uh, telling events that take place. Now as you page through to chapter 5, you see at the end of there of chapter 4, there's a genealogy that begins. Chapter 4 and verse 17, we have a genealogy of Cain. And then in through chapter 5, we have a genealogy... Uh, of Seth that we'll look at later this morning. Chapter 6 and verse 1, what do you see there? Chapter 6 and verse 1 is narrative again. A story is being told. And that narrative is going to go all the way to chapter 10. But in chapter 10, what do you see? This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, and themselves sons after the flood, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, and, and, and on and on it goes. Chapter 11 starts out with what? The Tower of Babel, we have a narrative. And then we go back in verse 10 to genealogy. And then in chapter 12, we go back to narrative. This mixing of narrative and genealogy. You've been tempted to think this way. I don't think it's true that a narrative's not in there to make the genealogies interesting. <laughs> it might be to some degree the other way around if we would understand it. These genealogies are vital are very important as they are woven together with the narratives of the text. Now, let's go back to Genesis 5 and think of the more immediate context. We have in chapter 3, in verse 15, this all-important statement. 
God says as cursing the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I will strike your head. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It narrows down to the singular there. And so again, we see this conflict between the offspring of the woman. We are understanding that now to be the line of Adam through Seth, as we looked at it last week, and the offspring of the serpent. We understand that to be Cain's line that we looked at last week in chapter 4.17 and following. So there's this conflict between the godless and the godly, between those who love God and want to serve Him and those who don't love God and don't want to serve Him. There's the city of God against the city of man. They are in conflict. Beginning now in chapter 4 and verse 19, with that, with 3.15 in mind, in chapter 4.19, Lamech is emphasized as the epitome of the direction this godless line of Cain would take. We find in verse 19 that he has two wives. We find in verse 20 through 22 that he has children who develop godless culture, husbandry, musicians, uh, metallurgy, then verse 4, Nama, that beautiful daughter is named. There's the developing of culture. Nama means beautiful. That's where we get that idea from Hebrew. Uh, and then, verse 23 of chapter 4, we find Lamech's murder. And all of this taking place within a city in the land of wandering. And so there is a city that is developing, there's a culture that's developing, but it's epitomized in the words of Lamech who stands up and says, I will avenge myself, I need no God. I will watch out for number one by myself. Now in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, we transition into a new genealogy, and that is the genealogy, as you see there in verse 25, of Seth. That is, Adam gives birth to a subsequent son, not Cain, who's now a godless representative, not Abel, who's now dead, but now Seth. Seth has a son, and he calls him Enosh, and the, and the text goes on. Chapter 5 now is an expansion of that introductory statement in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 4. And as with Lamech in Cain's genealogy, likewise with Seth's genealogy, they fan out at the end to include the children in order to draw a contrast between the two lines. We uh, discussed that again in our adult class this morning. But now it's important to note that the brief genealogy of chapter 4 and the lengthy genealogy of chapter 5, follow me here, brief genealogy of chapter 4 of Seth, last two verses, and the lengthy genealogy of chapter 5 are linked by that last little phrase in verse 26. Do you remember it? At that time men began to call in the name of the Lord. I believe, as we interpreted it last week, that there is here a banding together to worship God. People had called on the name of the Lord before. They had spoken to God. They'd walked with Him in the garden. But now people are saying, we are the godly on earth and we are going to come together to worship God, to call on His name. A primitive prayer meeting of God's people. And so we have in Cain's line, the distinctive feature is what? A city, a culture, developing, progressing. We have in Seth's line, the distinctive feature is what? Theology. People walking with God, naming Him, calling upon Him, and we'll see that further as it develops through the text. Now in chapter 5, we read Seth's genealogy, which carefully identifies these people as the people of God. They're born and named. They father a second generation, and then they die. Dry, boring stuff. 
unless we allow the genealogy to do what it is created to do, and that is to teach us invaluable lessons about the family of God. And that's why we've sung of the family of God this morning. That's the whole point of this genealogy. Let's begin now with verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, He called them man. That first phrase in verse 1, the written account, I think is a, is a, a good translation giving us the idea of what is intended there. Just a written account, or the Hebrew would be the book of the generations. The text then draws back away from Cain and now to the uh, head of the race of this new line. Going back to Adam, we see that he's created in the likeness of God. Verse 2, male and female, God blesses them and they were created and he called them together, male and female, man. Or the Hebrew again, Adam, Adam. Adam is a, is a specific name. Adam is a generic term for man, including male and female, as God sees it. Now these words in Genesis uh, or five, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, recall what? What do they call to our mind? We almost, we've seen these words before, haven't we? Chapter 1 and verse 27, God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, He created him in His likeness, male and female. He created them. So we're being drawn back to the original creative order. And we're saying, we, the, the text is saying we start with God, who creates Adam. And God blesses Adam and Eve. You notice nothing is said here about the fall. What the important point is chapter 1 and verse 28, the blessing that came upon Adam and Eve was what? To fill the earth and subdue it. So the mention here of blessing now fits very well as it flows into the idea of children being born. In this vein, chapter one or verses one and two establishes that God was the father of Adam. Cain's genealogy starts with Adam in one sense, but when it comes to mention, it really starts with Cain. Seth's genealogy starts with God. Chapter 5 and verse 2. Now let's look at verse 3. We have that kind of preamble to the genealogy. In verse 3 we read, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. These verses establish the pattern upon which the rest of the genealogy follows. There are two exceptions. There's Enoch and Noah. We'll come to them later. But these individuals break this initial pattern and by doing so force us to take special note. Like I did in my job as I went through all those obituaries when something was actually written down. Whoa, we've got two paragraphs here written on this obituary. And when I'd read that, it would catch my attention. That's what is happening here when we come to Enoch and to Noah. The pattern is broken. There's emphasis being drawn to these individuals. But it's established here. The pattern is established with Adam, his son, Seth, and the life that they lived. Now, Adam begets Seth, it says, in his own image and likeness. Do you see the connection again? Back with chapter 1 and verse 27. We can't miss it. God creates man in his own image, in his own likeness. Adam gives birth to a son in his own image and his own likeness. I think the idea may well be that there was some physical comparison, but most importantly, the idea is what? The idea of the genealogy is to connect Seth with Adam and thereby with the creative act of God. 
God is seen then as the father of Adam, and Adam is created in the image and likeness of God and now gives birth to a son in the image and likeness of him. And so there's a clear connection drawn to God, to Seth, from Seth to God uh, by virtue of Adam and his creation. Now, we have to ask a question here, don't we? Um, we have a younger son. That's not normal in a creative or in a genealogical account. Adam's first son is Cain. That is very important because this genealogy bypasses Cain for Seth, the younger son. We don't know how, but in some way, Adam conceived that Seth was the one through whom this godly line would be traced. You remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, that, that seed of the gospel, there will be this representative. Remember 3.20? Adam names his wife Eve. That was, as we presented that several weeks ago, there is in that an act of faith. Adam is saying, yes, God, you will bring someone, you will bring an offspring who will bring us out of the curse, who will redeem us, who in some way will crush the head of Satan. I don't think he probably conceived of how that would happen, but he responded in faith. It's going to happen. And now in Seth, Adam perceives is, he is the man. He is, the line will be traced through him. One more uh, question before we delve in further. And we have to stop here and ask this. How in the world does somebody live to be 930 years? Or do we really trust the Bible that says Adam lives to be 930 years and then he dies? Well, people have tried to say, no, it's 930 months. That's really what the text is saying. And then you come up with fathers that are five years old and things like this. It just doesn't work. If you take the text for what it says, Adam was 930 years old. And I, my answer to that is that, first of all, we have to just trust the Bible by faith. We trust it. But I don't think it's blind, silly faith. We often say, what? That someone has died from natural causes. Right? Natural causes. Well, I would suggest that nature was very different at this point in time. We have, first of all, environmental considerations. The earth, as we found in chapter 1, was blanketed by an invisible water vapor creating a greenhouse effect over the surface of the earth. There was a mild, warm climate over the entire earth for the entire year. This canopy, as it's known, had numerous significant effects on longevity. First of all, it provided an abundance of organic food. No junk food at this point in time. That might help a couple years anyway. Uh, there's a higher atmospheric pressure, which scientists now understand leads to longevity, helps someone live longer under high atmospheric pressure. Pressures that aren't necessarily present right now. Uh, but then thirdly, this canopy would have filtered out harmful radiation from the sun. We have a second area of consideration, and that is genetic considerations. There was likely no mutant genes in the genetic system at this time. There's probably no disease-producing organisms and untainted bloodstream. Now, that's not our world, but it was their world. And so to die of natural causes took much longer. We read then that Adam had Seth had other sons and daughters. There's a widely expanding population, but he narrows, the, the, the genealogy is narrowed to this one select son of Adam. We must understand that not every godly person is probably mentioned, and, and these select representatives uh, are mentioned in the larger interest 
of the entire genealogy. But we read those harsh words. Adam died. God had told Adam that should he eat from the forbidden fruit, he would die. It came true. The first man that God created dies. And beginning then with verse 6, the genealogy records in a carefully patterned manner a string of individuals who live and die. There's the blessing of children, but there's life followed by death. We know nothing about these individuals. The genealogy, like maybe an obituary, is just silent. But what we find here is that they are chosen for representation, not for emphasis, but they're chosen for representation. And we need to ask then, where are we headed with all of this? Why is it important to preserve their names? We are going, think of of an overview of the Scriptures. We're going from Adam, and we're moving through Adam to Abraham, the man of faith in chapter 12, and through Abraham to Shem, the son of Noah, and through Shem to Israel, the nation of God's people. So there is this physical line, this offspring that's being preserved. These people are necessary in the genealogy to continue to trace that line from uh, Israel back through Abraham and ultimately right back through Adam to God. And so we remember that the names that we're about to read are vital links in that godly chain. Verse 6, Then Seth, when Seth had lived 105 years, He became the father of Enosh. I'm in verse 7. And after he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. And after he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 815 years and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalel. And after he became the father of Mahalel, Kenan lived 840 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. And after he became the father of Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalel lived 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. And after he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. About this point, we're falling asleep. You just keep the same thing over and over again. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Wait a minute. That's not the pattern we've established here. Enoch is walking with God for 300 years. Then it says this strange thing, he was no more because God took him. I don't know if there's gaps in this genealogy, it's very possible. But what we do know about genealogies is that the seventh position, often there were gaps to draw attention to the one who came in the seventh position. That's Enoch. And there is, whatever the case, a great emphasis drawn to him here by breaking the pattern. As we look at verse 22 again, if you'll notice there, he became the father of Methuselah when he lived 65 years. There is here an obvious break in the pattern, 
And so, again, we are looking at this man who walked with God for 300 years, because that's what's then mentioned of him in verse 22. So let's think of the contrast. In Cain's line, we have Lamech, and now in Seth's line, we have later also another Lamech, but here the seventh in Cain's line is Lamech, the seventh in Seth's line is Enoch. In Cain's line, Lamech, number seven, where the emphasis is drawn, is a murderer, boastful, arrogant, self-sufficient. Who's the seventh in Seth's line? Enoch, what does he do? He walks with God. You see the comparison between the two. There's a contrast being drawn. Now, as we go to verse 24, let's try to uncover that a little bit. It, it seems strange. He was no more because God took him. This recurring phrase, and he died, 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 and then we come to Enoch, who's not found because God takes him. Well, we might wonder, maybe he just took him in death, just a change in the way that the genealogy is being drawn out. But Hebrews 11.5 puts that to rest. Listen to the words of Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Well, that solves that right there. He could not be found. Why? Because somebody buried him somewhere? No, he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So it is Enoch's walk with God, the fact that he pleased God, that leads God to take him rather than to allow him to experience death. In Jude chapter 14 and 15, we find that Enoch preached a message of repentance to the ungodly of his day. He was a godly man who spoke up for right, who stood for God, and in the end, we do not see him boasting in self-sufficiency like number seven in the, in the first genealogy, Lamech, but we see him walking with God and being drawn right up into his presence. I don't know how that happens. I don't understand that. But again, there's a place where we come to a point of faith and we trust the text. Now with verse 25, we return to the typical pattern of the genealogy. Read there if you would. Verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. And after he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. Now again, these are very old fathers. But there, there might be a case where some generations or some sons are missed. Uh, we're not sure. Again, the length of life. I guess there was no hurry to get married. I mean, just wait till you're 150. You know, then it's time to start thinking about a wife. I don't know. Uh, we do know with Enoch, he was, had a son at 65. So in this context, that's very young. Maybe all these others had sons that were 65, or when they were 65. But they just waited. Uh, till a godly son was evidenced and then they chose uh, that one, selected that one as a godly. We don't know. But at, at any rate, Methuselah lives to 969, which is apparently the longest that anyone has ever lived. We don't know. Uh, in Cain's line, there's no mention of age. But again, the longevity of Seth's line is probably connected to the blessing of God and it might well be that this is as long as anyone has ever lived on the earth. But as the genealogy concludes, we now encounter a second break in the pattern established in the preceding verses. So we've got to wake up here. This alerts us to the fact something's going on. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, now that's the break. Here we have a poem. He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. We find some real links between Noah and Enoch. Enoch is number seven. 
Noah is number 10 in this genealogy. Both are emphasized by a break in the pattern. Both are said to have walked with God. We read that about Enoch. If you go over to chapter 6 and verse 9, you read there that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people in his time, and he walked with God. So both of these individuals are said to have walked with God in a unique way. As we mentioned earlier, Jude 14 and 15 says that Enoch boldly rebuked a godless world. In Hebrews 11.7, we read the same of Noah. So both of these individuals are walking with God, both of them standing up to the godless world. And then we find here also another link that is between the Lamech of Cain's line and the Lamech of Seth's line, in that both of them speak out some words. They, there's a poem that they issue. The poem of Lamech, as we've seen, has been, is arrogant and self-sufficient. How would you describe the poem of the Lamech of Noah's line? Verse 29, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. It recalls chapter 3, 17 through 19, where the ground is cursed because of sin. But just like the poem of Cain's Lama, it gets hard to figure out. What does he mean? Is this a wish? I hope that he somehow helps us get beyond this curse of the ground. Is it a prophecy? God has told him in some way that Noah's going to have that effect. We don't really know. But what does seem apparent is that Lamech's words here within this godly line are words of redemptive hope. He sees the curse. He knows the cause of the curse is sin. And in this poem and in this son, Noah, he sees someone who in some way might affect redemption, might affect a change in the negative, a change in the sinful, uh, the results of sin. How Lama came to believe that Noah would affect such a change is unclear. But he is, again, a man of redemptive hope. Now in verse 30, we read then about Noah, that he was, as he was born, uh, Noah was born, Lama lived 595 years, he had other sons and daughters all together, Lama lived 770 years and he died. The after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, there seems to me to be some indication there. Here's, we have one father having a son at 65, and we have here Noah starting at 500. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate in getting married late, if these are his first kids. You know, wait 500 years and then get married. I, 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 I think it's very possible that Noah had other sons and daughters before these three. But these three, it's been suggested, might be the only three that he convinced to come on the ark with him. And so they are in the godly line in that they rejected their godless culture. We're looking up ahead into chapter 6 and following. I don't know, but at any rate, these three sons are identified. Now once again, at verse 32, there's something of a shift in the pattern of the genealogy, isn't there? We've been going vertically all the way through. This person fathered this person, this person fathered this person, and now we spread out horizontally into the several sons. We had that with Lamech in chapter 4, three sons and a daughter, evidencing godless culture as it develops in opposition to the glory of God. Now we spread out into three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As we mentioned earlier today, it's interesting to us that Shem is not the firstborn. But in the genealogy, he's placed first because there's emphasis being drawn to him in the, point, in, in the uh, place that he will play in the godly line. Now, let's think about it. Moses, I believe, is the author of Genesis. He's now going to go into a lengthy narrative that deals with Noah's sons 
and will not pick up their genealogy until chapter 10. So where is Moses going with all of this? He brings this godly line down to a tenth generation, then he spreads it out to three sons, then goes into the narrative of the flood, and then picks up on the three sons genealogically again in chapter 10. What's he up to? Well, we know that only Noah and these three sons escape the flood. And we know that Noah escapes the flood because he's a righteous man. And we know that when he lands on earth, Shem eventually becomes the father through subsequent generations of Abraham, which is where Moses is heading in chapter 12. And when we get to chapter 12, it's not one generation after another in, in verses. It's four generations through the rest of the book. He's obviously leaning us toward an emphasis upon Abraham, the man of faith, and Abraham, the father of the people of faith. As we know, ultimately, that line of Israel will be traced through Judah. That godly line through Judah will be traced through King David. Through King David, his greater son, Jesus Christ. It all comes right back to Adam. Let's talk about Jesus just for a few moments. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we find this prophecy of a single representative crushing Satan's head. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills that prophecy. And everything that comes from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Matthew 1.1 is proving that prophetically, that Jesus is the one. Where does Matthew 1 start? With a genealogy. Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the single representative of the offspring of the woman who crushes the single representative of the serpent's offspring, Satan himself. From Genesis 5 on, the people of God are identified by lineage, by offspring, by physical birth. We don't get that so much. It doesn't make sense to us. But we have to, we have to make that connection. One generation gives birth to another generation and in anticipation of the birth of this single man who will crush Satan's head. It is a physical line. Noah is a righteous man. His three sons escape the flood. Abraham is born. Noah's son Shem. Through him, uh, Abraham. Through him, Israel. Through him, David. Through him, Jesus Christ. It's a physical line. Now, I caution you. That line was greatly polluted as it continued. It is not to say that everyone that was born, all of these other sons and daughters were part of the godly line. That is not the case. Where do we find ourselves just in a few more verses? Standing on earth with only one family representing the righteous. And as we move past there, the same thing happens. The godly are a minority. They'll always be a minority as long as Jesus isn't reigning on earth. So those who walked with God were part of the godly line. But I stress again, they were part of a line, a physical line of people, an offspring. It is therefore, and I, I, I call your attention here again, put this together, I'm just about done, but it is absolutely essential that Jesus Christ be born of a woman 
in the physical line of David through Judah, through Shem, through Seth, through Adam. It is absolutely essential. What is so interesting is that when we come to the genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke, the genealogies end. They're silent. All the genealogies up to Jesus point to the next generation. But Jesus has no genealogy that follows Him. We don't read of the sons of Jesus. The genealogies end in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the evidence confirms that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. Since the time of Christ's ministry on earth, the righteous are no longer identified with a physical line and offspring of people. On this side of the cross, the righteous are identified as a family of faith. We have gathered here today and we have sung and we are now thinking about ourselves as a family of faith. From all peoples, from all nations, believers today are united in Jesus Christ and are children of God by virtue of faith in God and His provision for their salvation. Unlike the righteous in Seth's line, Jesus had no offspring. But like all but Enoch, Jesus did die. He identifies with the godly line through death as well as through his birth. Enoch cheated death, but by tasting death, Jesus defeated it. So today there lies before each of us one of two destinies. We've noted one line in chapter 4 and one line in chapter 5. It's no longer today a matter of birth by physical nature. But as was to some degree very true in the past, it is still today a matter of faith. We identify with the single representative of the woman's offspring, with the resurrected Christ, or we live out our days resisting Him. Let me just say that that's really what life is all about. In the end, it will not matter if all that survives you down here is a name and two dates. What will matter is that your name was linked by faith to those who walk with God. In the end, what will really matter is not how big a name you have earned for yourself down here. What will matter is whose list you are on. Are you God's offspring? Have you been spiritually reborn into the family of God? That's what matters. And when it comes to the days of our life, the little issues and the big issues, that is always what must pervade, that we are the children of God. That whatever comes into our life, whatever happens, wherever we may go, wherever providence may take us, we are God's people on earth. That's what matters. If you know that in your heart, there is think with me and what I can see in some of your eyes, rejoicing. I thank God that I'm part of His people. I know we have people that are persecuted, people in prison today across the face of the world. I know that in our country, we as God's people are ridiculed, we're looked at as insignificant, as silly people with these crazy notions of faith. All of that aside, I would want to be nowhere else but in the family of God. And I want not to be influenced by the family of Satan. 
I want to be influenced by God's people and by His Word and by obedience to Him. I thank God for life in the line of faith. If you are not in that line, if you cannot trace yourself directly by testimony to Jesus Christ and His saving work, you can join the family today. It costs nothing, but it costs everything. You lay down your life and you embrace His. We call you to that today, to join the family of God. It's not made up of perfect people, but it's made up of people who love God. If that interests you, let me assure you there's good news. God loves you. Father, we bow 